From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story. But that's why I'm here. To tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all. But only a confusion. A dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. Not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. Social commentator, socially commentating, what they stipulating. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on fourth through time, to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't, further down the line. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that presents and explores the work of some of the most brilliant, visionary, creative, and caring people who are doing great work to help create a more beautiful world that we know is possible. My guest today is Karen Warner, a faculty member here at Goddard and an award-winning narrative audio producer. Karen Warner, welcome 
to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. What a wonderful intro. Thank you. So you wrote that in a master's program in education, you felt a wave of wanting to be in spiritual practice and that you had a gifted professor who wove together Toni Morrison, Freud, the myth of Psyche and Cupid, and the professor's own interviews with 9- to 13-year-old girls. Voice, resonance, relationship, democracy, the honesty of things. This is it. Raised Jewish, I didn't speak Hebrew, didn't know if I believed in God. Can I be a rabbi? I heard that some Jews see God as the relationship between people, arms linked. That is where I see God. What are the relationships, processes, and institutions that encourage truth-telling? And I thought, well, since I don't believe in God and don't speak Hebrew, I'll become a professor. Same thing as a rabbi, right? So when I read that, I just totally loved that because I could so relate. Mm. Much of my life, I had this sense that if I had been born at another time, I would have been a rabbi. And if I had gone to school, I would have gravitated towards being a teacher or a professor. But I dropped out of college. And so somehow or other, I ended up here Mm -hmm. on the radio. And it's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah, I mean, as I'm hearing you read that, which I wrote like five years ago, I actually am moved hearing it read through your words. So thank you for sharing that back and through your own emotion. And also, yeah, I don't think I fully had the aha. Like radio is another place to do the work that maybe because of my upbringing and your upbringing, we associate with the the possibility of a rabbi. A rabbi, in the best sense, is someone who uses words, you know, to create a community, to invoke the possibility of a powerful synergy between people and things we don't know of. You know, so like using words, using stories, using relationship. So I guess... Radio is totally a space for being rabbinical. Yeah, and caring enough to, to meddle in other people's lives in a, in a caring, loving way. Mm-hmm. So how did you find Goddard? You went to Ivy League schools and traditional colleges. Yeah. How did you find Goddard, and what was it about Goddard that appeals to you right. to teach here? You know, Goddard was just kind of like in the ether of the things that I was really intrigued by because I loved the edges and the margins. I've always really loved the places that are, you know, kind of experimenting. So it just somehow was in my peripheral vision. And I remember even before I got hired here, I just drove by and pulled, you know, drove through down the little one road of Goddard and um, just was like, oh, interesting. And then I saw a job available. This was like maybe 14 years ago. And again, the job even talked about blurring lines between activism and art. So all those just blur the edges, the experimentation. It's really the possibilities of Goddard are just so full of energy and excitement and creativity. So that's what has drawn me here. And it sounds like 
that's what that gifted teacher that you encountered mm-hmm. was doing as well. Mm-hmm. She was working to blur the, the lines between all these different wonderful juicy elements. Yeah. And I'm really curious to hear more about how that person affected you and yeah. and where you took that in your life and in your work. Um, the professor that I'm referring to is Carol Gilligan, who wrote a really wonderful book. She's written a bunch of books, but the book that has had a really big impact on me that is referred to in that bio is The Birth of Pleasure and talks, you know, it ha- it's a lot, it's about so many things, but one of the things is the relationship between the self and the culture and also relationship as the, the point between them, democracy as really connected to the way we connect with each other and speak with each other. She's focusing on gender dynamics, but it really is a lot about what makes love possible. What is love and love and democracy? I mean, those are just, you know, the best questions I can think of. Like, how do we coexist together in a way that is beautiful, just really, really creative, our best selves. So that, again, it it ends up blurring lines between the most intimate and the most political. And those lines are just so exciting. And story is an amazing vehicle for that on so many levels, narrative, democracy, voice, the voice as being not just an individual thing, but voice really being a relational thing because a voice is one thing, but a voice has to be heard in order for the voice to grow, which is why democracy is can you know is basically a space where voices grow so i'm really curious how narrative plays into all of that because i mean i grew up doing a lot of reading and mm-hmm. literature is narrative mm-hmm. and it's very rich and i think that's where i learned about the incredible range of human experience from the most violent and oppressive and horrible to the most mm-hmm. sublime and right. wonderful. And out of that emerged like seeds of the depth of compassion and understanding and care for others. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. for you, where do you see narrative taking us? And mm-hmm. where do you see the place of narrative in the world, particularly in, in terms of where we are today in the mm-hmm. world? I mean, what what has happened? We've had literature, we've had narrative, mm-hmm. and yet the world is where it is right now. What what's mm-hmm. what's going on? What do you see as the dynamics at play? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I see it on multiple levels, and I'll try and focus on two. And so, one is the act of I, I find it very compelling, and as you know, I love to do this through radio. Um, the act of telling one story or telling a story kind of in a duet with someone else so that the act of making meaning and crafting a narrative and it can take many different directions so the way that we craft a narrative in a way the very act of a narrative why we tell some stories and not others it has an impact in the world so for instance you have heard this piece that I've made and I think you might play later called Laws of Lost and Found Objects, which is a personal narrative audio documentary that is an attempt to re 
connect to the relationship with my mom through making meaning in a story structure. So kind of a story structure, a beginning, middle, end helps make meaning out of, you know, a relationship is not an easily distilled thing. It's so complex and any part of our life. And, you know, the wonderful quote you had at the beginning about like the whirlwind of our lives, but then we make a story later to kind of make sense of it. And it helps the way in which we make sense of what our lives are then really informs the way the world unfolds, you know, like it really has an impact on what we do next, how we make that meaning. So even the very story that we tell is a political act because it it impacts the power of the word, which again goes back to rabbinical or religious things. The word does so much to co-create the world as it's forming. And that's the larger sense of narrative too. Like we live And that's where narrative kind of blurs into culture, even what we think of as a person, the boundaries of where I start and another person, where I end and another person begins. Like, those are all part of the narrative of the culture that we inhabit. Where do I end and water begins? Like, why do we make a distinction there? These are all constructed narratives that we then enact and make real and have very real implications for how we treat the world and each other. But so we, both in our micro narratives and those macro narratives, we're constantly creating the world. And so it becomes like almost narratives, like an incantation. We're making the world as we make sense of it. Right. I think of two things. I think of the the song lines in Australia where the Aborigines literally sing the world into existence every day wow. of their lives. And I also think about how we come into this world and we're conditioned by our culture and it starts out in an unconscious way. It's totally unconscious. We We just absorb everything from culture, and then we play it out in our lives. How do we make the leap to... Um, I've been reading and playing talks by Doug Rushkoff, who's mm-hmm. a digital savvy person, and he talks about the concept of program or be programmed. Mm. And the language... I'm not a computer person, but I love the language because it's very simple and it's very precise, and it relates to all of this. Mm-hmm. And also, Terence McKenna talks about culture is not your friend and that we have to take back our minds Mm -hmm. it's a similar thing of Mm. making bringing consciousness to our narratives Mm -hmm. bringing consciousness Mm -hmm. to everything inside of us to our programming and to become aware Mm. of of Mm. how Mm. we've been conditioned and how culture flows through us and make it our own but to do it in a conscious and deliberate way and to think about the consequences of our actions and our beliefs and our thinking and the way we relate to everything in the world. So Mm -hmm. I just love the richness of this whole area. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's so rich because it's it's like a creative project. Personally, you can really make creative beauty or, you know, beauty in the broadest sense. Sometimes it's very um, bleak full of pain, but those are really important kinds of beauty too. So yeah, it, it invites a lot of creativity, both on the personal level, but also on the, you can also think of it as a, having a bigger implication, not just your own self. And there's another element, because I'm very interested in making a better world, and, mm-hmm. and I'm an activist in my own 
way. But my approach is, the way I see, see it is very, very different from the way activism has been done in the past maybe a couple hundred years. Buckminster Fuller was quoted as saying or writing that you don't struggle against the old system or paradigm. You create a new one that makes the old one obsolete. So I see a lot of effort in struggle and pushing against, and I see the folly in that. And I'm very sympathetic to everyone who's engaged in that because I care, and I know they, they're acting out of care, but I so much want them to make much more efficient use of their energy and their passion. And this is a whole area that, that I would just love to see better understood and, and more integrated into the whole activist movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think activism does have many, many forms, and it's really important to see maybe they all have a, an offering. Right, you know, a and, place in it. And yeah, and maybe it's also how we understand what it is to make a world that is, you know, inclusive, just, beautiful, you know, in a way that, you know, is not harm, minimizes harm to any being. That honors everyone and mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. yeah, there are many ways and multiple, um, at the same time, approaches to doing that. And storytelling is such a huge one. And again, story happens, because in a sense, activism is a storytelling, like a social mm-hmm. movement is a story. Yeah. Um, Black Lives Matter is a powerful story yes. that moves in the direction of inclusion and justice and beauty. And then again, like a single person's story can add nuance and depth to that. And it's important. Again, radio is a beautiful way to amplify, broadcast stories that we want to help make that world too. And we want the greatest possible diversity of narrative and stories. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's ve- I think it's really important to have... The, the, the horrific stories because they help inform us in ways that maybe we don't understand. It's like that, again, that quote from the introduction that in the beginning, it's not a story at all. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a wreckage and we're out of control. We're just, sometimes we're being taken down this, this mm-hmm. thing that, that we don't even know what it is until afterwards and we reflect upon it and then tell stories about it. And those stories that we tell afterwards, they evolve as we make more sense of them and yeah. create meaning out of them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even the same story of our past changes as we grow and mm-hmm. evolve our awareness and understanding of life. Mm-hmm. And so stories are incredibly rich and powerful in so many different ways that mm. I imagine we'll continue to learn and understand about you know, mm-hmm. the implications mm-hmm. and possibilities of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just, I'm utterly fascinated by this whole area. That's great. And it's yeah. like the expanding universe. It, it just seems like it could never end. Yeah, I think stories are, I guess that's a big thing about humans, I think, making stories. So I guess as long as humans are here, I don't know what other species do with stories, but it's definitely a big part of being human. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious how you got into stories, what inspired your passion in stories? 
Yeah, there's so many <laughs> stories, I suppose, ways of responding. And the first thing that popped into my head was more like as an adult. As a kid, I was just much more physical and just like to be in my body running around. But like in my 20s, I think I would go to puppet shows by this fantastic group in New York that's kind of connected to Bread and Puppet. They're called Great Small Works and they do these toy theater and I just like fell in love with toy theater which is when was this um they still do these wonderful events in New York but I used to go in like the 90s I guess so that was when I was like puppet (laughs) stories are just like heaven and I don't know even before that like loved documentaries in particular but I love most of all the personal documentaries like Agnes Varda's film The Gleaners and I which is a really wonderful quirky documentary a way of understanding the world but also understanding the self through the metaphor of gleaners people who pick up the vegetables that are left behind and um so I don't know yeah, those like there's stories, but then there's also the kind of stories. And I think in the puppet show, the case of the puppet shows, the idea of sitting with others on the floor as a you know, no matter how old people were, they were all like cross-legged, watching with heads bent up and watching these little like almost Punch and Judy like things. I mean, and we would all eat spaghetti together. So story is just like this incredibly joyful community creative these puppet shows were you know made with cheap materials and just such a feeling of just making out of so little and making such joy and there's a big Yiddish kind of aesthetic in this whole thing too like a kind of the underdog just I don't know the whole aesthetic just kind of I fell in love with and then so initially I, I did a lot of my storytelling through puppetry and then I've also on the side was loving making music and I think songwriting is also a kind of storytelling with a refrain that you repeat and kind of an oral storytelling form. And I don't know, at some point just really liked the way audio, radio could combine as a form, the puppetry, playfulness, the low techness of it, the kind of radio is the Yiddish (laughs) of, you know, in the world of a more higher film or visual realm, radio and the ear are, or a more underdog realm. They're kind of passe and cute and community radio is this, you know, it's not as mainstream or dominant as visual medium. So all of that, you know, both in terms of story, but then also why choosing radio as a form for story. I've always loved radio and audio. It leaves so much more yeah. room for the imagination. Yeah. In that way, it's very much like books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Except you don't have to read. You can actually sit back Mm -hmm. and just take it in, which is really wonderful. And in a way, I don't really understand why it's not as big as the visual thing. I mean, in a sense, I can understand it because we've become a very easily distracted culture. And maybe that's what it is, but... Mm -hmm. But the richness of being able to engage our imaginations and kids just love to do that, I think, more than anything. I mean, I just love that. Mm. And to lose that, I've never lost it, fortunately, but to lose that, I think, is to lose maybe the biggest part of ourselves. Yeah, losing the imagination. Yeah, radio definitely invites us. The listener is 
making the world up as in their mind. And they do say radio is the most visual medium for that reason. But, you know, don't forget that radio is like totally having this renaissance, you know, like podcast. Oh, podcast. Massive. So audio, audio. And I think radio too. Huge. Yeah. The Pew Research people Mm -hmm. did look at the surging of radio and podcast listenership. And it's really escalated even with very short, big differences within very few years. Well, the quality of podcasts has dramatically improved, I think. Totally. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm out there listening to, yeah. to these things. I'm listening to everything I can get my grubby little paws oh, on. Very I, good. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I got wildly into radio theater, uh-huh. like ZBS Media. Are you familiar with them? No, I'm not. And there's Firesign Theater. Yeah, which, I heard you just recently played some. Carla told me. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. ZBS is brilliant. They're yeah. not well-known um, public radio used to play them, and we used to play them many years ago. And they they integrate spiritual stuff no into it in very subversive and wonderful what and culture. They're they're brilliant. They're utterly brilliant. This guy, Meatball Fulton, <laughs> that's his nom de plume. He is absolutely brilliant. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> I used to be held hostage in my car back in the eighties when they started playing that stuff. I remember in my car, sitting there, just totally wrapped to the radio. I didn't want to miss anything. Mm, that's really lovely. It, it was like being a child again. Yeah, yeah. that's what being a child was, was having my attention yeah. completely taken mm-hmm. and completely surrendering myself to that. Right. Which is the great, amazing, wonderful power of narrative. Yeah. Right. You're also a fan of what you call autoethnography. What is autoethnography and how does it fit into all of this? Yeah, it's really closely linked to all this because autoethnography is kind of a response to a way of doing anthropology, which is ethnography, where you go and you study a culture. That's often the main technique you, people who are anthropologists use. They go do this thing called ethnography that has different techniques to it. But you're basically looking outward at another culture that you're not part of in ethnography. But autoethnography says, why don't we, you know, ethnography is loaded with all kinds of power dynamics. Often it's kind of an American or a European anthropologist going to look at a non-American, non-European culture. There's all kinds of global colonial dynamics. So autoethnography comes out of that discomfort with the history of anthropology and says, what happens if we put a mirror to the self of the anthropologist or the ethnographer and look inside and see that self as a culture or a microcosm of a culture? And a lot of times people do autoethnography, which, by the way, is a very popular methodology at Goddard because we're doing a lot of questioning about the power and critique in different methods and ways of knowing So autoethnography is definitely grounded in a critique of the colonial history of anthropology. And you often tell a very intimate story. I would say Laws of Lost and Found Objects, the radio documentary I made, 
about my mom and me is an autoethnography kind of and it, it actually is a fine line like what you call a documentary what you call an autoethnography sometimes the techniques are the same but just depends on which genre or audience you're speaking to and which direction you're focusing your attention yeah mm-hmm. and you know which community you're part of as you're making a piece and what theories you're thinking of and techniques but yeah, this summer I made a very specifically an autoethnographic audio piece, which I don't have with me, but it was about my relationship to my home and then brought up big like other issues about both how I feel about my home, but then also issues of private property. So through the intimate, you can raise a lot of more broader cultural questions but you again you put whenever you talk about autoethnography I always hold my hand up as if it's a mirror and you really look at your own self as a cultural microcosm Mm. and also this kind of self-inquiry is a major part of some spiritual traditions as well right yeah you're right and I love the way that all blurs like you can really blur the creative because autoethnography is also kind of literary creative nonfiction, which is, of course, an art, you know, and then you're doing it as a social science method. But then it's also, you're totally right, a spiritual inquiry. So I think really good ones. Self-exploration. Have, yeah. Because that old thing. Yeah. To know thyself. To know thyself. Wait, yeah. wait. And what does Dogen, Zen master Dogen says I'm forgetting the quote right now, <laughs> but like it's a, basically an extension of Socrates' thing about knowing yourself and, mm-hmm. and also forgetting yourself is big in the Buddhist side of it too. Right. But in order to forget yourself, you have to know yourself. Yeah. So yeah, there's a spiritual, aesthetic, methodological and social science, and then also activist sense to really, again, if we, it's so much harm is done because we do not know ourselves well and profound amounts of projection so like really to step back and to understand the self is a wonderful way to minimize harm mm. and maybe even yeah. do some good yeah. so it's really understanding how much damage can be hap- can happen when we don't know ourselves because when we know ourselves that's our vehicle for knowing others yeah it's so true like if we can you know i think something I have loved about making radio pieces, but maybe all creative work, if it's a using myself as a main character, seeing how a powerful episode in my life, like if I can really connect to the core feeling of it, then it does become a point of entry to understanding other people's pains and sufferings. And that's an incredible way to connect with others and mm-hmm. not other other people right. they become so, our set they yeah. become us in a way i know yeah. so and that's that's the spiritual project yeah you know blurring the line between self and other and i am embarking on a project in september i'm super excited about called strange radio which is very much specifically about the stranger and so again trying to dismantle or deconstruct or topple this idea that there is a stranger who's separate from ourselves Mm -hmm. and to use radio which is itself a strange medium that you can't touch it's in the air it's in the ether it's who even knows how a radio works i don't even yet understand but the strange medium to understand that again and other is really not different from myself and all the harm in the contemporary world right now towards, say, refugees, towards strangers, the profound violence that is emerging 
because one person projects so much onto another. And if we can undermine our sense of separation through knowing ourselves, then we can also not have these others all the time, even the others within ourselves. Because that's where the other comes yeah. from. It's our own shadow, the yeah. things that we don't like and repress and refuse to acknowledge yeah. about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then go to war against. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited to hear what you do with that. I'm so excited. It's going to be seven episodes. Wow. I'm going to Vienna to make these, mm. which is where my family's from and also where there's a huge influx of Syrian refugees. Yeah. So looking, yeah, opening up the ghosts of refugees from the recent historical past in that city and the ghosts in me and my family still in that city. And then also, you know, a tremendous demographic shift that has caused very serious nationalist politics in Austria. There's a presidential election coming up there where someone who's extremely politically right-wing and anti-immigrant is in the lead right now. The election will be October 2nd. Wow. Mm -hmm. Similar themes happening all over. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. But we'll see how much radio can, you know, how radio is one of the ways in which we can reframe the narratives that we live with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, where do your stories come from? The ones that you do audio storytelling? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, lately I've been really giving myself the assignment of following pleasure when I make a piece. So really, what is it that, and it's actually good for me to remember that going to Vienna, because that's going to be an intense place. But I made a piece recently that I'm almost finished with that's a dear friend of mine. I just love my friend, Laura, and she had gone to see the monarch butterfly migration in Mexico. And I asked her to just describe that in vivid detail, what it was like to be amidst millions and millions of butterflies. And so that's a simple story. It's barely even a story, although there is a a slight arc to it. And then I interviewed the friend that she went with, who is a biologist, but also a cellist. And I asked him the same question, what it was like to describe in vivid detail, but I had him answer only in cello. So it's a duet for voice and cello about the monarch migration and experiencing all those butterflies and just totally went with the people that I love in terms of a story idea. And that's kind of, I have been really trying to follow my heart as a way of dowsing what stories I'll produce and really feel like it's a relational practice. I do it as a way of following my heart. And it's a way of getting closer to people I love, like making the piece about my mom, making a piece about my dad. It's a way of engaging with people that are really important to me. It's like how you find the truth. Yeah, I guess so. And maybe, in a way. yeah. And I guess it's interesting. You know, I hadn't been thinking of it in terms of truth, but... I think it's just beautiful to think that our heart, like the, the desire and passion is a way of truth telling or like that it's an energy that is very important and seems connected to truth in some way. And being true to yourself, which has been an important thing for me, you know, to find out how to do that. The truth of, of the passion and what's most important to us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. somehow being a friend to yourself. Yeah like the deepest form of honoring ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that does feel like a kind of truth-telling. Yeah. And what you were saying reminded me of your audio piece, Resonance One, 
And I'd like to know how you do your audio pieces. Do you do the whole thing yourself, or do you have any help with your productions? No, I pretty much record and then edit. Yeah, when I've, like, one of the pieces, like, when Australian Broadcast Corporation does buy them, and they sometimes do micro-refinement of the levels and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And they add their intro and outro. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but Resonance, I totally did myself. Yeah, my friend actually held the microphone and asked me questions. She interviewed me for that piece. I was going to interview her, but then she didn't want to, she at the last minute said she didn't want to have it. Uh, So yeah, that piece Resonance is actually made in the space of a relationship. It's The piece is very much about how relationship allows us to speak that we are always speaking in relationship even if we don't realize it whether it's people who are our entire being is a relational being whether the people are physically present or not who have helped us be who we are but in this case my friend was sitting across from me and interviewing me and it really is a piece that is created out of the space between me and one of my closest oldest friends Mm. Was there an element of spontaneity in the piece as well, that whatever mm-hmm. emerged in conversation was part of that? So it wasn't necessarily scripted out? Or- oh, definitely not scripted oh. out. Yeah, that definitely, that all the content in that piece came out of the relational space. And then you added music after? Yeah, and I did edit it quite a lot. Oh, yeah. So like, yeah. you know, there's a lot behind the scenes in terms of the order, totally paring it down. But yeah, and then I sound designed it, I scored it. So how do you make those decisions? I mean, I do an unbelievable amount of editing, so I know that part. And sometimes it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. And you either go in one direction or you go in another direction. And you talked about following your heart. Is that... Yeah. I mean, you're using your head, too, to to determine, but... I mean, it's a great question. I guess it's like how anyone creates, you know, as you know, like, I know it's like, when you make a piece, there's so many other directions it could have gone. But for whatever reason, that was the one that emerged. And there's some times where I just want to go and re-edit the same piece over and over again to see what new story would emerge out of the same material. Well, in music, there's this tradition of variations on a theme. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And with my intros, I do variations on my intros. Mm-hmm. I've done dozens and dozens and dozens of right that's fun yeah. yeah and as i think i mentioned i want to do resonance as a variation on a theme as a as a topic i i don't think i have on my website part two resonance two no it's just one but i should post that one too because that's a totally different take on the same topic should we play resonance let's one do it. and then yeah i think it's like under three minutes maybe that piece let's see i am just having a memory of being a little girl with a babysitter, just sitting in this high chair with my feet dangling in this depressing light and looking at the wallpaper, which were images of houses and the radio being on. The kind of dim light in the kitchen and just the incredible loneliness of the sound of the radio. There's a physics experiment where you have a tuning fork over a test tube full of water and you hit the tuning fork. You hear no sound when the water is at certain levels, but when the water hits at a particular level, 
that has the same resonating frequency as the tuning fork, you hear a sound. So the fact that a sound can be uttered but not even registered or audible because the space can't contain it is so moving to me. Like what do we not even hear in our culture because we do not have the container that is at the right resonating frequency. And then there's another room that had the piano in it and the dining room table. And my mom would probably play that piano and she had this particular Bach tune that she would play. And then back into the kitchen and the lights are on now in the kitchen and there are maybe a couple people and the door to the backyard is open and there's a patio and you know a little loneliness on the patio no awning just kind of fall or early spring like no leaves I think my initial understanding of it is being listened to like you know, just someone listening and then in a way that feels like I'm invited to go further and discover. So it's a space in which my, it probably, you know, my understanding of the cello metaphor is that the cello, if it were just bowed strings, it wouldn't really be that much. But when it's inside this chamber of sound, it becomes so wonderful and the sound just wants to keep being made and like new discoveries being made because there's this container that lets it become so I'm little like four years old and suddenly I'm told Mary Ellen is going to be with me for an hour or so And Mary Ellen has a bag full of really wonderful goodies like magic markers and paper and other office supplies that she's brought. I know that I have her undivided attention, which is even better than any goodies. And I think together we draw or I draw and she watches me draw. I think I'm using the blue magic marker and making triangles and shapes and like on a big piece of notepad paper and making a whole scene on it with shapes that are like bugs with, you know, little antenna and just feeling her attention and it eggs me on and I draw more and I get her attention maybe a laugh and I want to do more I feel like I can't get enough of her and I am so sad when she has to leave and for years after I ask you know where's Mary Ellen can I see her I want to hang out with her so if in this instant I am the one who's the tuning fork and you are the test tube with a particular amount of water. You know, we are creating something together that is larger than what each of us brought. 
That is such a rich piece. Mm-hmm. So what are the most essential elements of a really good audio story? Mm-hmm. What, gives, what makes a really impactful, mm-hmm. grabbing st- mm-hmm. experience? Good question. I don't know. Like, uh, it's... I mean, you work with these elements. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's your job, right? right. <laughs> um, okay, I think, like, maybe the... Th- I went, I've heard... I listen to a lot of stuff. So I think maybe the most important thing is that the one making it is really, really invested in the story that they're making... I really care about the producer's energy. Like how, is this just something they're doing because it was, you know, like a commercial thing? Like meaning they're doing it for money. Like you can feel the difference in the quality of a piece. So if this is really something coming because this person needed to make it, that energy I think makes all the complete difference. And then it's all a matter of technique after that, you know, and like what really helps is, you know, it helps to have decent quality audio, you know, this was one of the first pieces I've made, so I can hear some technical things I might, you know, like the, whatever. <laughs> it sounded really good. But oh, thanks, no, no, thanks. No, like, um, I'm yeah. very interested to hear everything, everything. From you. Yeah. Okay, so then the other thing I would say, in addition to heart and sincerity of the producer, is a sense of the piece as a piece of music and a composition. So really thinking about rhythm and musicality and and space pacing of the piece. And um, so thinking of it into, as a piece of music, does it have variety? Does it have, does it build? And I think those two are like really key things. And then in, in addition to having sincerity, maybe it's connected, but does it have a meaning that's larger than just a small story? Is it both a small story, an individual story, but also does it have meaning on multiple levels can a listener step into this piece and find their own meaning in it does it allow for some openness so that not all the meaning is prescripted but the listener can step in and bring their own life does it have enough direction for the listener to get engaged but still spaciousness for the listener to bring their own association and life to it and co-create it basically. And you know what, I mean, what else? Yeah. I think that rhythm, pacing, heart. (laughs) Mm, That was so beautifully said. (laughs) And it also reminded me of the way Martin Luther King spoke without any music, his speech pattern, the way he spoke was very musical, very rhythmic and because of that, I think it had a tremendous impact. Mm-hmm. It sank in to a very deep level. It hooked us. Yeah. Yeah, that's And great. there was a lot of heart. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think love is an ingredient that has to be in a piece. And musicality. <laughs> that's mm. so fun to think about. <gasps> it was so wonderful to hear the way you, you articulated it. Well, I bet it had to do with the resonating space, you know, between Mm. us and between the listeners. This has been one of the most delicious conversations I can remember. I know you're pressed for time Mm -hmm. and it's really been wonderful, wonderful. Antonio, thank you so much. What an incredible joy to talk with you about 
audio storytelling, which you know I love talking about. And then in the larger context of all the questions that you asked about, you know, the spiritual side of this, the political side of it, the larger way that we make a narrative in the world, and the power of radio and all that. And the possibilities mm -hmm. of radio. I'm so looking forward to hearing what you're doing this fall. And, and I'm also really, really very interested in the possibilities of what can happen down here mm -hmm. in collaboration mm -hmm. with the college and with you mm. and your efforts and your skill, mm. your understanding of the medium. Because you have a different angle than we do down here. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all trying to bring heart to what we're doing, but we're doing it live and we're doing it by the seat of our pants mostly, mm -hmm. which is a wonderful totally. practice. Yeah. But it's also wonderful. I mean, what you're doing is amazing. They're a good combo. I, I thrive on that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great combo. And mm -hmm. maybe we can learn from each other or at least us on our side can learn from you. I think it goes both ways and I'm very excited to grow the relationship between the academic side of Goddard and the radio WGDR. Mm. So I've been speaking with Karen Warner. She's a faculty member at Goddard College and she's an award-winning audio producer. And your piece that we're going to hear in a moment or two won first prize Tell us a little bit about that, where that happened and how that came about. Such a thrill. That piece was purchased by the Australian Broadcast Corporation, and they nominated it for this prize called the Pri Marulich, which is specifically an international radio prize for pieces that engage with an old text, broadly defined text. It can be an old song or it can be an old piece of literature. So it turns out there are all these international producers working with old texts, whether consciously or not. So my piece got nominated, then it got shortlisted. And I actually, when I got shortlisted, I thought, well, I guess I'll go to this festival. It was in May, just a couple months ago in Croatia. And for about a week, got to listen to all the pieces that were shortlisted from producers from all most parts of the world except for like Africa. And so there's a fantastic work from China, Turkey, Iran, all over Europe, Australia. Actually, I, I was one of the only U.S. producers ever to go there so far for this particular prize. And my piece won first prize in the documentary, which was quite unexpected for me. And I still get energized and nourished by that. I guess validation like can really further trust my instincts about what I'm doing here. Yeah. I know for me, it makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you so much. Again, this has been truly wonderful. I mean, wonderful, wonderful. Great. And we're going to hear Laws of Lost and Found Objects, produced by Karen Warner. Hello from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Earshot podcast, bringing you stories in sound. Great to have your company. Today, a distressingly persistent and very modern question about the survivors of war or genocide. How do they cope? How do they simply get on and live their lives? 
We know that for many people, the answer lies in focusing on the present and the future. But while it can be painful to look back at the traumas of the past, without some kind of acknowledgement of that past, the survivor can perhaps experience an ongoing loss. Well, it's interesting that children of survivors often feel called to look back and engage with the past in order to understand their family's story and to understand themselves. In today's program, producer Karen Werner travels to Auschwitz as a means of connecting with her family's history and in particular with her mother's displacement and loss. With the help of her mother and a rabbi and a chapter from the Talmud, that ancient Jewish legal code, Karen brings to light what her own family has buried. This is Laws of Lost and Found Objects. It was June. There were a lot of birds at Auschwitz. I was about to spend a week there for a bearing witness retreat, which brought Buddhists like myself together with Jews, Christians and Sufis. The plan was for all of us to meditate on the tracks every day. My mother was not a fan of me going to Auschwitz. She's all about looking forward. Why look back, my mom would say. But I've been looking back. Hello. Hi, Mom. Hi. <laughs> okay. Can you give your full name, including your Hebrew name? Okay, my name is Marion Werner, Marion Alien Werner, and my Hebrew name is Malka Leah. I was born in Holland, and then I moved to Brazil as a baby, Rio de Janeiro. I lived also in Petropolis in Brazil. I moved to Israel when I was 16. Then from there, I moved to Vienna. There I lived for about five or six years. Then I moved to Montreal. And then from Canada, I moved to the United States. How does it feel to list all those different places? Well, it was always very interesting. And you get to know and, and live, experience different cultures and different languages. So it's really, it was a good experience, in my opinion. Call it a daughter's instinct. What I feel and hear in my mom's voice. Well, it was always very interesting. I could tell something was missing. Some truth or feeling had been lost, buried. And it was like some part of me was missing too. That when you lose hope of ever having it again, you separate yourself from it. At Auschwitz, I had a fleeting glimpse of what was missing. Whether it's a person or an object, you separate yourself from it. But then it was gone. I needed my mom to help me find it. Because I think your questions are very important, you know, for your own self. Because I think what you're trying to find is, have you lost something? That's what you're trying to find. And what is it that was lost? I suppose by traveling, I captured that loss. I, I captured something which is bigger than what I lost. Whereas you are not there yet. 
My mother gave me a hot pink long silk scarf to wear during the retreat at Auschwitz. It was like a protective shawl. My mom's way of shouting to life as her daughter went to sit on the tracks for five days. There were about 60 of us meditating on crumbled cement. We sat facing each other in the sun near the brick tower entrance of Birkenau. Tourists passed on either side of us. At breaks, we stretched our legs by the cement light posts that looked like soldiers with metal hats. In my pocket, I carried a photo, the only photo we have of my great-grandmother, Sheva. So, um, do you have your photograph of Sheva nearby, or could you go get it? Yeah. Okay, I'll get a copy of mine, too. I keep this photo of my great-grandmother, Sheva, on my desk. She's about 45 in the picture, already a grandmother. Sheva turns her face toward the camera and, without smiling, looks right at me. She has great eyes, smart, fierce, and warm. Do you have yours? Yeah. Can you describe what the picture looks like? Well, it's, it's a woman in the prime of her life, and she was very self-aware and, and secure in, in the knowledge of her selfhood and has very witty eyes, and she looks, you know, this is two generations back, and she looks like a modern woman. It's a, a very small picture, and yet it really comes through that face, doesn't it? That's the one photo my mother always had, you know. Alas for the loss out of my pocket. If someone finds a lost object, even one that has an identifying mark, and knows that before it was found, the original owner expressly indicated that he had given up hope of recovering it, he may keep it. My mother admired Shiva very much because she was intelligent, she knew the Talmud very well. Apparently, people respected her for her knowledge of the Talmud. My great-grandmother Sheva loved Talmud, the ancient Jewish legal code. Sheva lived in Vienna in the 1930s. Studying Talmud was unusual for women at that time. But Sheva learned from her father, grandfather, and uncles, all of whom were rabbis. I had never seen a Talmud, but before I went to Auschwitz, I was curious and found one in the library. I randomly opened to a section and photocopied it to read later. When I finally unfolded my pages, I was surprised by the chapter I had copied, The Laws of Lost and Found Objects. If the scattered produce was a combination of dates, pomegranates, or sesame seeds, it is not clear what the law is. Therefore, the finder should not pick up the fruit. But if he does so, he may keep it. How do you feel about the fact that Sheva is your grandmother and that you didn't get to have her in your life? Well, it was sad, and my mother always said that I was like her, you know. <laughs> so it was something to emulate. For my mother, she represented who the family was. 
it was like a chain, you know, from my grandmother to my mother and from my mother to me. So she's kind of a matrilineal legacy. Yeah, it's a, a connection, a chain, a matrilineal chain, you know. It became ownerless when its owner gave up hope. If a person found a fig cake or a loaf of bread with coins in it, he must announce that he has found them. Since such things are unusual, if someone saves an object from a lion or a bear or retrieves an object swept away by the tide, he may keep it, even if the owner is present. Alas for the loss out of my pocket. At Auschwitz, I grew afraid of the dusty soil everywhere. I washed my hands, wiped my boots, took my clothes off far from my bed. I did not want Auschwitz dust touching me. The dust of being powerless. The dust of fear. There's a story about my great-grandmother, Sheva, the Talmud scholar. My grandfather tried to persuade Sheva, his mother, to leave Vienna with his young family. But Sheva refused, saying, You can't move an old tree. I never lost Vienna because I never knew it before. And I loved it when I lived there. You, you don't need the, 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 the past as much because it's what you achieve with yourself and, and, and with your life. It's really what matters and the people who are living at the moment. My mother's family moved from Vienna, The Hague, Rio, Petropolis, Haifa, Vienna, Montreal, New York, Pittsburgh, Austin. My grandparents had owned like half a block on a street in, in Vienna, and apparently there was no way of getting them back because the Nazis who took over the buildings from my grandmother, they had sold it, and the people that bought it bought it in good faith. So one couldn't do anything about it, and the government wasn't willing to help. So that's when we decided then to leave again, but we had to wait for the Canadian visa, and that took several years. One scholar writes, the elimination of Jews from society was intricately linked with the confiscation of their property. I didn't, my parents didn't have many friends after they came back because all the friends, it was very depressing, all the friends were dead. 200,000 Jews lived in Vienna before the Holocaust. 135,000 fled. 60,000 sent to concentration camps. 800 Jews remained in Vienna when the war ended. From 200,000 to 800 in 20 years. You know, that's like 
of remarkable transformation of a city to have a particular ethnic group pretty much just, you know, exported out. So I guess one of the things that I'm curious about is what are the ways that a city acknowledges or works with that past? Well, um, when you talk to Austrians, they all now feel that they were not Nazis. They were very passive. Uh, and, and when Hitler invaded Austria, they just let it happen. It was really in, in the universities that there was a, a reaction to Hitler and there was an underground, which that's where your father was, you know, in the underground. It's still a wonderful city to live in. <laughs> if he runs after the lost item, this is a clear indication that he has not given up hope of recovering it, and the finder is obliged to return it. But if he does not run after the item immediately, this is a clear indication that he has given up hope of recovering it. At some point, you switched my Hebrew name from Zipporah to Sheva. Right, right. Well, I felt that you represented very much what she was too, you know. So, I, and, and you, you somehow had a, always a connection with her when I talked about her and you loved that picture so much. And uh, I think that's the reason I thought you deserved her name. You know, the more I look at her, the more I think you had that same forehead. <laughs> you know, you have that same forehead. Somehow they found her in Holland. The Nazis found her in Holland and sent her to to Auschwitz. You know, that when you lose hope of ever having it again, you separate yourself from it. Whether it's a person or an object, and you separate yourself from it. I realized I went to Auschwitz looking for Sheva. One afternoon, we stood in a gas chamber, and I tried to connect to Sheva there. But I really could not connect to her. I felt no trace of her there. It was like she just didn't want that to be the defining part of how to connect with her. That when you lose hope of ever having it again, you separate yourself from it. I had a strong feeling that my photocopied Talmud chapter, which Sheva had led me to in a way, could help me find what I lost. Rabbi Ed Feld, a Talmud teacher, agreed to help me. Together, we read and discussed the laws of lost and found objects. These are the objects which you find, which you can keep for yourself. And these are the objects which you must publicly declare. If you find fruit, spread out, ma'ot mefuzarot, if you find money spread out in a public place, krichot b'rshut if you find bread and... This Talmud chapter is all about who can claim a lost object, the one who lost the object, or the one who finds it. 
A key factor, it turns out, is hope. If the original owner maintains hope of getting the lost item back, then the finder needs to return it. The fact that hope influences who can claim a lost object gave me, well, hope. But what happens when you have no hope of return because you aren't even aware your object is missing? At the end of the page, they have this wonderful question. Is there such a thing as giving up hope in an unconscious way? A normal human being, if he finally gets to think about it, will give up hope. But he hasn't thought about it yet. That is to say, if money fell from my pocket, but I didn't know that the money fell out, I obviously haven't given up hope of finding it because out. I don't even know that it is gone. It's really interesting. If the Talmud lets us say that, you know, my grandparents and my parents had loss, but in a sense, for survival reasons, couldn't recognize that loss, do I, do we still have claim to these objects? So there's a distinction here which the Talmud itself would make between things which I lost to being robbed. It's not simply that one has lost the object. Uh, some violation has taken place. Some, something, has, something has been taken away which is beyond the object. Uh, some mental ease. And it's important to find ways of restoring that. Rabbi Feld's words shook me. Of course, I had not let myself see it before. I was confusing lost objects with stolen ones. Rava said they were stolen, means they were stolen by armed robbers. They were lost means the ship sank in the sea. Auschwitz, we had interfaith ceremonies at different sites around the camp. Each day I went to the Jewish or Buddhist ceremonies, which were familiar to me. We recited prayers for the dead or fed the hungry ghosts inside all of us. One day I surprised myself by going to the Christian service. I felt uncomfortable there, separate, even protective. But I trusted the Polish priest named Jacek, who was part of our retreat. Jacek led us into a brick shell of a building, and together we recited prayers for the Stations of the Cross. Behold me here at thy feet, from the bottom of my heart, I am sorry for all my sins, because by them I have offended thee. To my amazement, something in me softened a boundary between me and others, between fear and connection. And I was clear about what I needed to find. Hello? Hi, can you hear me? Uh, not very well. Huh. Okay, now, now okay. Okay, good. I, I think growing up that 
it was kind of maybe a certain kind of protectiveness or just shielding me from this past. And I wonder if on some level I'm trying to bring up this loss again at a generation's distance because I think it unconsciously has been part of our family's story. Well, yeah, I think so, too, that uh, we, we somehow put it to the side because it was a loss. And by not facing it, and you are facing it in a healthy way, there is a loss. There is a lost effect that we don't have a, a family, you know, and, and it is now we are far away, you know. I suppose what you are trying to bring it out is what is it that we lost? I was always a stranger. I was a stranger in Brazil. My parents didn't speak Portuguese well. So I was like a little bit of an outsider. I traveled and I had a hard life. You know, I had to always fight to have what I wanted. So I started crying for all the things that I had lost, even though I had not been in a concentration camp. But I never had a grandmother. I never had, you know, all these people died. So I was very aware of my loss then. But as I think now, I feel that I lost it and I have to do what I can do to make myself happy. From the cracks, something true emerges. My mother gave voice to her loss, to our loss. She shared what before she couldn't utter. It is this, I realize, that I have been looking for. I'm curious, is, does the Talmud have any advice around loss, the feeling of loss? Here my mind goes more to Psalms. I am a stranger in the land. And says that in terms of, therefore God should turn to me because God loves the strangers. Being in touch with that sense of there's something, there's something not right, there's something, even though this is where I live, there is a feeling of homelessness. All those, I think, open oneself to the possibility of compassion. You know, when you find that in yourself, you're able to find the place that hurts in others. And you're able to turn that place into a source of healing. The last night of the Auschwitz retreat, we went into a concentration camp bunker in the dark. Wide empty stalls where the beds and people once were. Wrapped in my mother's hot pink silk scarf, I lay down on the dirt floor and rested my head on the ground. The dusty soil got in me and on me, into the seams of my boots, into my hair, into the fibers of my hot pink scarf. After a week of sitting on the tracks, talking with others, hearing the birds, and watching my own mind, I wasn't afraid of the dust. 
Laws of Lost and Found Objects. That was written and produced by Karen Werner. We also heard Karen's mother, Marion Werner, Rabbi Edward Feld and Ivy Song Muller as the Talmud reader. Supervising producer was Lee Redfern with sound engineer Judy Rapley. And you've been listening to another Earshot podcast. Thanks very much for your company. I'm David Rutledge and I'll catch you again soon. Bye for now. look for allies in life's battlefield, but to my own strength. Let me not crave an anxious fear to be saved, but hope for the patience to win my freedom. Grant me that I may not be a coward 
feeling your mercy and my success alone. But let me find the grasp of your hand in my failure. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week. <laughs>